Thessalonians chapter 4, continuing in a series through this book, passage by passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, near the end of the scriptures, go to the end and then switch back a few books, you'll find Thessalonians 1 and 2. We're in 1 right now, we will finish out uh, 2 before the end of this year. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, here like often in Paul's letters, there's a little bit of a shift in the middle of the book. If you read Ephesians, you read Romans, you'll see there's a change where uh, Paul is laying out greetings first, and then usually he goes into theology and the, the, uh, what Christ has done. And then about midway of a book, he typically switches and says, therefore, or finally, and he begins his descent into the, the application of this, the living out of this, and 1 Thessalonians is no different. In, in chapter 4, he says, finally, or therefore, and he gives us how now we should live based on what he had said before. So we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4, read through verse 12. It's printed for you in the bulletin as well. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us, you ought to walk as how you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we have instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. So a tale of, of two football coaches to begin with today. I know everybody in this room is equally invested in the outcome of the University of Nebraska football, as I am. Uh, that just goes without saying that everybody's keeping up on this. I know that. Uh, but my, my beloved uh, Cornhuskers... It's my college teams where I went to college, and last week uh, the the coach was fired. Scott Frost, our coach, was fired in his fifth losing season uh, at our university. And what I want to highlight this morning is that Scott came with a lot of hype, and in a way he actually he fed into that that hype that uh, was out there. He was a national championship winning uh, football player himself. He was a winning coach in Florida, and when he came to the school, it was like we landed in, in the new heavens and the new earth. It was, like, it was like, 
you know, everything was rolled out before him. There was so much hype. I remember seeing a t-shirt that said, in frost we trust, right? And that was, that was the level of, of hype and excitement that he generated. And I remember one of the interviews that, that he conducted when he was just hired, you know, the, the reporters were talking to him and they were asking him um, about his, you know, his plan for the, for the school. And I remember one of the things that they asked him was, you're going to bring this this offense, uh, this, your, this unique style of offense to the Big Ten. That's the conference that we're in. And, and, and he said, you know, yes. And, and they said, well, do you think that your offense needs to be adjusted because of, of how hard the Big Ten is? And his, his response was very confident and very quick. He said, I'm hoping the Big Ten has to adjust to us. Turned it around on him. That's some confidence. That is high promise. This is what's coming. Fast forward, of course, he was fired this last week. His Big Ten record stands at 10 wins, 26 losses. So the Big Ten did not need to adjust to his offense. Now, a contrast, this is not fair. This is the second coach, Nick Saban. Not fair. One of the greatest coaches have ever lived. But I remember reading another story. This is the the coach of the University of Alabama. And uh, if you listen to him talk, there's very little promise. I read once that, that uh, and I don't know if this is actually true or not, that, that he begins his first practice of every year, and I want you to imagine this, this very winning coach with four and five star recruits, you know, four or five deep on his, on his roster. And, and the story was that he begins every the first practice of every year, crouching down on the ground with one hand on the ground and saying, this is a three-point stance. This is a three-point, this is the most basic thing in football, the most basic position, and he builds from there. Because, so the story goes, games are won by disciplined individuals doing what they're supposed to do. It's not just talent. Of course, talent matters, matters a lot, but fundamentals matter more. And so what he emphasizes is not the extraordinary promise, but the ordinary process. And this is something that we need to learn. This principle is something we need to learn as Christians because there is something deep within us that wants to be extraordinary for God. That is a deep desire that many of us have. We want to come with a lot of promise. We want to position ourselves so that we are very significant in this kingdom. What am I going to do for God? What is my unique ministry? What is my kingdom impact? These are the types of questions that we ask. And we think, even though we may not say it sometimes, that if it's extraordinary, if it's extraordinary, then we will please God. If it's extraordinary enough. But when we come to the Scriptures, we see that God has never been pleased with us because of our extraordinary contribution. That is not how He designed us. It's actually very ordinary. It's not the promise of what we could be or what we could contribute, but it's the process, the fundamentals that actually please God. Here's what I want us to see today. 
we please God when, in Christ alone, we pursue ordinary faithfulness in each of our closest domains of responsibility. That's a mouthful. Let me read it again. We please God when, in Christ alone, we pursue ordinary faithfulness in each of our closest domains of responsibility. When I say domains of responsibility, I'm talking about the roles that God has given us. Going back to football for a second, the linebacker does this, the kicker does this, everybody has roles, and we have these domains of responsibility. And when we attend to the ones that are closest to our own responsibility, then we please God. That's what he says in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. This is the way that we're going to walk or to live in Hebrew, to walk and to live are the same thing. They mean the same thing. It's the idea that Paul carries into this. This is how you ought to live, how you ought to please God. And we're going to talk about the three closest domains of responsibility. The closer you are, the more responsibility you have to be ordinarily faithful. But first, let's begin with this, talking about in Christ alone. That's what I said. We please God when in Christ alone we pursue this ordinary faithfulness. And that is very important because that's exactly where the Apostle Paul starts. He's not telling us this is how you, how you earn you know, acceptance for God. He's not saying this is how you please God. You know, he's checking off a box and now you've earned a spot at the table. He begins, he says it twice here, in Christ, through Christ, verse 1, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is Paul's starting place. It's in Christ. It is through Christ. So he's going to tell us how to walk. He's going to give us a lot of challenge on what we need to do, but he begins in Christ. It is through Christ. Nothing can be done outside of it. This is the gospel that we preach. This is the good news. We don't earn the pleasure of God. We receive the pleasure of God through Christ. And this is God's gift to us. Without faith, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, it is impossible to please God. Where do we get faith? Well, it's not from ourselves, Ephesians 2. It's grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. When we talk about walking before God, we're not just talking about, we're not talking at all about earning our place at the table. We're talking about Him giving us the faith that we need to respond to Him. And now, how should you live? How should you walk? Very important. And Paul then says, this is something that you received from us. This is the earliest way. This is the earliest path of discipleship. In verse 1, he says that as you received from us how you ought to walk. That word received there is the technical word. It means the tradition that is handed down. This is something that Paul has taught in all of the churches. He gave them a pathway. The first Christians were called the way. Christianity was called the way. Christians were on a journey. 
And he says, this is what this is about. It begins in Christ. And then he says, then it transforms the three domains, three closest domains of your responsibility. Let's go there now. First domain, closest one, the body. The body. If you want to please God, Paul says, don't start by trying to change the world. Start with your own body and sanctification. That is your closest domain of responsibility. Look at verse 3 with me. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body, literally vessel, in holiness and honor. This is the will of God. This is how you please God, that you, in Christ, pay attention to your own body, control your own vessel. This is highlighting one of the earliest distinctions of Christianity in the ancient world, which was a concern with the body, as opposed to just with the inner self or the soul. And so, Christians have always believed that the body matters. One scholar says it this way, the honor due to the body as such is one of the great contrasts which Christianity offers to the loftiest systems of heathen philosophy. There's a contrast, he says, between Platonism and Christianity. There's a contrast between Stoicism and Christianity, and those contrasts are found in its concern with the body. See, in other systems, the body is the shell and the grain is the important part, right? The, the external thing doesn't matter so much. It's what, what's on the inside that counts. That's the ancient you know, philosophy. Stoicism and Platonism both teach. But it's not like we don't teach that still today. It's not like that's not part of our society. We are built on the same assumptions. Many of us would say, or we certainly have read or experienced people who say that what matters most is what I do on the inside or believe on the inside. My body doesn't matter as much. Nancy Piercy, who's a, a great author, and she's written a book called Love Thy Body. We used it some for the series we did on sexuality on Wednesday nights. And she calls this distinction that's both ancient and modern the two-story house of our identity. She says the way that we talk about a body and the soul is like we have one house that has two stories, and on the bottom story is the body. And on the top story, the, the, the second level, the more important, the higher one is the self. We have the body and the self. And much of our problems in today's society are that we think that, that we've accepted the two-story view of ourselves. That what's, what happens in the body can be separated from what happens in the self. It leads to all kinds of distortions. Christianity says, Paul says here, your body matters. We're not two stories. We are one story. We are body and soul. Our body is ourselves. And so we cannot separate them. So Paul says this command, abstain from sexual immorality. Because what happens in the body happens in the soul. It is one and the same. No specific sin is mentioned here. He uses the word porneia there this, for sexual immorality. 
and probably he had nothing specific in mind. Um, Oftentimes in Paul's letters, he names specific things that are happening sexually in the places that he was visiting and calling out specific things. Here he just offers it more as a warning that you need to abstain from sexual immorality. And he makes two points about the body. He says the body has a vertical dimension and it has a horizontal dimension for our responsibility. He says, first, look, you need to recognize that your body has to be in reference to the God who made it. That's the vertical dimension. Is God the reference point for our bodies? Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. He says, the Gentiles don't know God, but you, in contrast, you do know God. And so your body needs to be in reference to God. Your sexuality matters to God. He's even more explicit in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Our bodies must be in reference to God, the way that He has designed our bodies to be. He has designed our sexuality. Because God cares about this. He's the one who is giving you, present tense there, the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we talk about the Holy Spirit comes in the past. You know, I have the Holy Spirit. I was given the Holy Spirit. But here it's in the present tense. He's giving you His Spirit. It's this present reality. It's this It's this person who can be grieved and can be disregarded. The Spirit of God. He says, there is a sexuality that the Scriptures teach, and we have to line up with it because of a vertical responsibility. We have a responsibility to God and the Holy Spirit. But also it's horizontal. Look at verse 6. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. That means that we have a responsibility with our bodies to also love others. One person said it this way, you cannot break this rule, that is sexual immorality, you cannot break this rule without in some way cheating your fellow man. Sexual immorality always involves others, always. Our bodies are not our own. They belong to God And they also belong as part of the body of Christ. And so when one part of the body suffers, the other suffers as well. And he even attaches the idea of punishment to this. He says, look, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We know this is good news. We hear about a horrible sexual crime in our culture, a sexual assault. It just is so harmful and so bad, and everyone agrees that if someone takes advantage of someone else, someone assaults someone, everyone agrees punishment is needed. That cannot stand. How dare someone violate someone else's body only for themselves? There should be strict penalties. We all agree, I hope. Do we feel that way about other forms of pornea, sexual immorality, God is the avenger, Paul says, in all of these things. And all of these things harm other people. Pornography harms people. Adultery harms people. Sexuality outside of the bounds of marriage harms people. 
And I'm so thankful that the gospel comes to those who are sexually broken because that is all of us. All of us are broken in the body. It's in Christ that these sins are forgiven. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians when Paul's talking to them and he, he lists all these horrible sins of sexual immorality and then he says, such were some of you. You were rescued, you were redeemed, you were sanctified in Christ. And if you're in Christ, God does, is still the avenger, but he avenges this sin on his own son. Paul assumes that we have been hidden with Christ in God, that we are in Him, and therefore we are walking with Him. And so he tells us this strong language, abstain from this. Your body matters. It matters how you walk. Controlling our bodies is the first action. It is the closest domain. It is where our sanctification is lived out. How many of us are tempted to try to be extraordinary, to try to change something in the world, and yet our own bodies are out of control, given over to lust. He says, start here. This is your closest domain of responsibility. This is where the will of God is manifested, your sanctification. The word there just means your holiness. You're made holy by controlling your body, by Christ, through Christ, and then walking in the control of your body. The body is the closest domain of responsibility. Secondly, the brotherhood. Go out a layer. It's not just your own body. It's the body of Christ. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. He says, you, You're growing in love. I want you to grow in love even more. We looked at this a lot last week, so I'm going to be quicker in this point about how we need to love the church of God. That was last week's message. But three times here he says, brothers, brothers, brothers. The important thing for Paul is that this is a brotherhood, a sisterhood. This is the church. Loving the church, of course, doesn't mean that you don't speak the bold truth. Paul has just talked about sexual immorality, and then he commands everyone to love one another. So clearly, Paul doesn't see talking about sexual immorality as being an unloving thing. He's trying to practice it himself. And so there are, there are those, we need to say, that, uh, that would hear what I just said about sexual immorality and abstaining from the things that God has told us to do and say, well, that is unloving. It is true that you can be unloving with the truth. But you are not necessarily being unloving with the truth. But we should have a level of concern for those who are in the church around us. We do have a responsibility to one another, and when we take that responsibility seriously, we please God. Notice how he flows it from inward to outward. The body, he talks about first, abstain from sexual immorality, control your own vessel. But then he says, the body, the local body, love one another. And then he mentions regional. He says, for indeed, in verse 10, that is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. 
Thessalonica is in Macedon- the region of Macedonia, not a well-off place, kind of the ends of the earth in Greece. And here, as we've already said, the, the, the gospel is spread not just to the Thessalonians, but even their reputation has gone out. that They're serving and loving people beyond their, even their local context. This is the movement of responsibility. It came first to them as individuals, and then it moved out through the body and even through the region, through Macedonia. We have a responsibility to those that God has called us to serve, first locally and then as far-reaching as we can. We do have a greater responsibility to the local church than to those that are outside the church. This is what Scripture teaches, Galatians chapter 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There is a greater responsibility to the household of faith than to the world. So Paul says, get it in the right order. Love the brotherhood. Love your local church. Serve one another. Care for one another. And then it will expand out from there. I hope that you experience this church uh, as, as a loving community. I ask myself that question all the time. Is this, is this a loving church? And I believe that it is. I, you know, I hear many of you say that it is. But I also know that uh, pretty much every single church that I've ever been a part of has said, we're a welcoming and loving church. Like, that's it's something that everybody says. So it can't be true of everyone. So I hope that we have some self-awareness about that. I want us to hear Paul's encouragement. You may have this, but you need more and more of it. You need more and more indeed. Verse 10, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. It should be the experience of everyone that you're growing in love for the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the body of Christ. What does that love entail? We've already said it doesn't mean that we avoid speaking the truth. That can't be it. It means what then? Not that we avoid the truth, but that we are okay with people in process. I think that's a key important part of being, of being loving. And we need to know that when I speak about sexual immorality or I speak about whatever it is from up here, it's not with a like, I know how this is and I've mastered it completely with my, my life. It's, it's not that way. My goal is to say what the Bible says, but that doesn't mean that any one of us has arrived at this. Every week, there's a, there's a sense of this is what the, wor- what the Word says, but this is how I'm struggling to live it out. There's a process here. Yes, we can be loving, but we need more and more love. We need more and more of the gentleness of God, more and more of the patience of God. Speak the truth, but then in love, let's be under that truth together. And many of us, let's just go back to the first point for a minute, are struggling with our bodies, a sexual immorality or what my identity even as having a body. This is much of what our culture is addressing right now. And we need to be compassionate and listening towards those issues while still saying that controlling the vessel and defining it the way God says it is important to do. They're both important. We concern ourselves with our own bodies, then with our brothers and sisters, then our neighbors, then Phoenix, and then the watching world the third domain of responsibility 
that is closest is the bystander. Yes, I did use a thesaurus to get one final B word for you. It's all for you. The, the body, the brotherhood, the bystander. This is the watching world. Yes, we have a responsibility to the watching world, a responsibility outside of the church. But notice how Paul talks about it. It's not with extraordinary means. It's very, very ordinary. Look at verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. That's the game plan. That's the witness. Aspire. Literally, make it your ambition. Strive for. I'm waiting for my big stage opportunity to come when I'll speak to thousands of young people on this stage. The topic is ambition. The topic is how do you make an impact for the kingdom of God? How do you make your life count? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <laughs> Here's how you do it. Here's how you have a big impact with your life. Here's how you please God. Here's how you make your life count. Number one, learn to be quiet. Number two, mind your own business. Number three, work hard. Paul says that is the greatest witness to the outside world. Verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I haven't gotten that, that opportunity yet to say that, shockingly. Here's where the opportunity is for our witness to be quiet and to live diligently with what God has given us to do, concerning ourselves with that. What if we opted out of the noise? What if we Christians were not interested in hot takes? If we minded our own business and we took care of those who are around us? What if we concerned ourselves with our own local bodies? First this body, then this body. And those became holy and blameless, as Paul talks about here. And then what if we showed love to one another in a greater community of love? There was a, an attraction there. There was a reputation. This is a place where you can grow and love. And we took our own responsibilities well. We worked hard at what God has given us. We loved our children well. We did the work. We invited our neighbors, our specific neighbors, our actual neighbors in hospitality, and we took care of the domains that were closest to us. To summarize Paul's command, he says to us here, put your attention where it belongs. First, talent matters, of course. There, there are Jonathan Edwards, Tim Kellers. There are people in the kingdom of God who have gone beyond what the ordinary person has. There is great gifting out there. Of course, that matters. But it doesn't matter as much as the ordinary faithfulness. Not by a long shot. What matters most is the fundamentals. And if... The gospel doesn't change our bodies and our communities. It doesn't change the world. 
And so we need to stop feeling the guilt on that end of trying to change the world. But to trust Christ to change us, the will of God is for our sanctification. To change the the immediacy around us, our own bodies. And we leave the world to God. He's much more equipped to do it than we are. It's not to say that you won't have a broader influence, that God can't use your ordinary faithfulness or use you despite your ordinary faithfulness. That does happen. But we please God when we, through Christ, take care of what He has given us to take care of. God has never been interested in what you can do for Him. It doesn't make sense. You came from Him. Anything that you have was already His. It doesn't make sense for you to give back something that He can't receive Himself. Rather, our lives are the overflow of His life, His grace given to us, His love in Himself and the Trinity poured out into creation. We are an overflow of His love, not something that He created for Himself to get something back. And so his love for us is in the beloved, in his son, Jesus, and he is pleased when we, empowered by Christ, are faithful with what he has given us. If you pay attention to what he has given you, you walk with him, depending completely on Christ, you will please him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us to love the ordinary faithfulness of our lives. Teach us to delight in working hard in what you've given us. Teach us to delight in the very people that you've put around us. Teach us to just delight in seeing our bodies submit to your way and find joy and freedom there. I pray, Father, that you, through Christ, in Christ, would make us know that this walk is not something that we need to gear ourselves up for and go out and accomplish for you, but rather we would see that Christ has already done it for us. He has walked for us. He has pleased you. This is your beloved son, and you are well pleased with him. And so we are pleased only when we, we please you only when we are in him. So as we receive Christ this morning, we taste and see that you're good at your table. Bring more of Christ to our hearts so that we are equipped to live a life of ordinary faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.